Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we're talking about modern medicine. We're talking about how medicine has evolved over the years. It used to be in the old days there was part art, part science, part intuition. Then the trends seemed to move to a very westernized clinical setting. And now it looks as though medicine is swinging back somewhere in the middle, which personally I'm pretty happy about because in our Western medical practices, many physicians are employing techniques that at one time were considered alternative or maybe out there. But science is proving that they're not so out there after all. My next guest is Dr. Alex Lickerman, who is a physician former assistant professor of medicine, director of primary care, and assistant vice president for student health and counseling services at the University of Chicago. He currently leads a direct primary care private practice called Imagine MD in Chicago. Alex's first book, The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self, was published in 2012 and has received numerous favorable reviews from many sources, including Publishers Weekly. Welcome, Alex. I want to jump into this conversation because it's really a juicy one. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. You are a conventionally trained, your initial training, Western doctor. And you have, for the past several decades, practiced Buddhist philosophy in your life and in your practice. And I am really interested to know how this works for you and how your patients are receiving this way of being and treating in the world. 
Well, so of course I don't uh, announce to all my patients that I'm uh, a Buddhist or practice Buddhism, uh, but the, my Buddhist practice absolutely informs my medical practice because Buddhism is primarily concerned with the alleviation of suffering. And uh, as my practice has progressed in my I'm now sort of in the mid-career, I've actually become more interested in how disease affects a person's life than in the disease itself. And I'm very interested in sort of treating not only a person's disease, but also the suffering that that disease may bring to them and how it affects their life uh, and and their values and their careers and all and family relationships and all those things. So I absolutely every day bring Buddhist philosophy into my practice of medicine. It's not necessarily just labeled that way. Uh, brilliant. And, and and I think this is part of the gifts of how we use these philosophies in practice. It doesn't mean it has to be rubber stamped as such, as such. It's really a way of being in the world. Well, I think that's right. And, and you know, Buddhism has a, a unique uh, place in many people's minds. They're, they're more often intrigued by it than they are anything else. And so there are many patients who I tell I'm, I practice Buddhism and uh, even will describe how my practice affects my personal life and how, I, how many Buddhist ideas that I introduce in my medical practice um, can have benefit for them. I mean, there's a lot of, um, a lot of modern day therapy uh, and, and therapeutic techniques arise from uh, the philosophy of Buddhism. So I think uh, people resonate with that very easily. I agree. And in terms of defining Buddhism for our audience who may not have had an introduction to it, can you elaborate a little bit on the Eightfold Path and the Middle Way? Sure. So, you know, the challenge with Buddhism is that there are so many different sects of Buddhism. There's almost as many sects of Buddhism as there are other religions besides Buddhism. So they're, and they're different in, in sometimes very large ways and sometimes very small ways. But I would say at its core, Buddhism is about observing one's mind and achieving happiness in this life. This notion that enlightenment is a real state that you can achieve uh, in this lifetime, that you don't have to sort of die to achieve it in the next life, uh, is what always attracted me to it. And the idea that it is about bringing forth wisdom already within your own life to deal with your very pragmatic everyday problems was what got me interested in doing it. But, um, you know, the Eightfold Path and, and, and all those things um, really, in my mind, circle around one major um, uh, idea, and that is that um, whatever problem you may be facing in your life, somewhere within your own life is the wisdom you need to overcome the suffering that that problem brings. And by tackling that suffering through the practice of Buddhism, you gradually acquire more and more wisdom until ultimately, theoretically, you you achieve the ultimate wisdom, which is a, an awakening to the identity or the nature of your life itself. You know, what is life and all the philosophical questions that come along with that, um, I think has great relevance to the way we experience life on a day-to-day basis. I agree. And as Dr. Lickerman, who walks into the office and treating a patient, let's say who has just received a very difficult or challenging diagnosis, how does this apply in your delivery and treatment of that patient? And how does it apply to the counsel you give that patient to manage what he or she has just heard? Yeah, it has an enormous impact because um, f- as a physician and a Buddhist, my, my real aim is to uh, obliterate suffering or relieve suffering where I find it. And so, you know, especially when you have to actually give somebody or tell someone that they have a terminal diagnosis, um, I actually find, believe it or not, those to be the most rewarding kinds of conversations I have because I am so 
concerned with the impact of, uh, of news like that on people, it informs the way I do it. And there are actually are many scientific studies about how people, when they receive that kind of bad news, they remember how they were, were given it and the, the, the empathy or lack thereof that the person who gave it to them uh, had for the rest of their lives. You really have an opportunity to, to impact people in a positive way. And so some of my most satisfying patient interactions are with people who are actually dying because uh, there's often not that much that I can do for them medically. But clearly, having just uh, uh, someone from the medical profession who cares about them and, and will not give up on them. I always say that to all patients I've ever had to tell we're dying of something, that no matter what happens, I will not abandon you. And I think that togetherness, that being with with a patient rather than being the physician treating the patient is something that... Um, has the greatest impact on relieving suffering. And of course, there are many Buddhist principles I bring in and help people to use to think about their disease and their suffering and maybe that they have a terminal illness or a very severe illness that really can impact their experience of that illness. So I'm calling on those principles all the time without necessarily labeling them Buddhist principles. And it really flies in the face as I see it, what what you're what you're sharing as how modern doctors are trained. I mean, are you not trained to, of course, uh, ostensibly have a good bedside manner? And I'm doing air quotes as I say that good bedside manner. But there's also the separation that you are the deliverer of technology, not necessarily the bearer or witness of to someone's suffering. Well, we're really in love with technology uh, in the modern world, aren't we? Especially in our country and thinking that technology has the answers. And so people typically, when they think about going to the doctor, think about the tests that have to be run and the diagnoses that are going to be made and the treatments they're going to receive. But this is why you can't really ever uh, put a computer in front of a, a patient and say, here's your doctor, because there is something about the relationship and about the empathy, the understanding of emotions, the nuance of that, that just cannot be replaced by uh, technology. And of course, the problem is our technology is so advanced and our science is so advanced that in medical school and residency, residency training, that takes up all your time just to master the, the enormous amount of information that you have to master, which is why, interestingly, I find, so, you know, doctors immediately out of their training are a little bit robotic because they've been so focused on the the, the science and technology of medicine, it takes years, I have found, to sort of get back to realizing that as a physician, your greatest power is as a human being and just being with people and, and this artificial distinction between us and them, that we're the doctors and you're the patients and we heal you. Uh, all it takes is for a doctor to get sick once in a serious way, as actually happened to me, and you realize what an artificial distinction that is. And it really, um, one of my greatest therapeutic weapons is empathy. Yeah. And so, you know, you know I, I think there are medical schools that actually are, are trying hard to bring that into the curriculum. But I always laugh thinking, you know, how do you actually lecture and teach empathy? You can explain it, but to actually get people to practice, it's a very different thing. And this is where the Buddhist philosophy is such a gift because implementing the practices, you know, or the, um, the challenges of removing judgment, of, of being a, a better observer, of accepting what is, of being of service to others, all of these aspects that I, you know more of than I stimulate, I call it the empathy gland. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and not to say, I mean, of course, none of those things are uh, only characteristics of Buddhism or Buddhist thought, right? But we all, you know, can, can recognize the value of those things without having to be 
Buddhist practitioners. But there's something about, you know, when you're practicing um, uh, Buddhism daily and reminding yourself consciously to try to embody those characteristics when those those things are are important to you as a, as a person, as a practitioner. Um, I, I think especially when with the press of, of schedule that we all experience and the busyness we all have, it's very easy to leave out um, time for those expressions of empathy and compassion. And, and uh, I try very hard to be mindful during the day, not to do that with each of my patients. I, I want to just um, share one thing. I have my brother-in-law, my ex-brother-in-law recently passed away a few weeks ago. Dr. Hugh oh. Kamen, uh, yeah. who was a clinical psychologist, brilliant. And uh, he came to know, especially what you are talking about, you know, that empathy and connection with his patients after having been challenged, you know, with, with a terrible diagnosis. Yeah. I had a similar experience. I, uh, when I, when I turned 40, I almost, uh, died twice from, from complications related to a simple appendectomy. And, uh, it was a transforming experience for me and, and really put me much in, in closer touch with, uh, the fears that my patients often have. Cause you know, as a doctor, we, we get used to, I make diagnoses, uh, you know, of hypertension, diabetes all the time and it becomes very routine. But to the person being diagnosed with those things, it's often the first time and shocking and, and to, you have to work really hard not to lose the perspective of what it's like to be confronting a problem like that for the first time when you've been healthy all your life and to sort of be empathetic to that um, is really key. Indeed it is. Um, Let's talk a little bit. We're going to go to a break, but before we do, I want to touch upon um, the concept of pain. You know, if we are alive and all of us listening to this or speaking here are, we are going to be confronted with some pain in our life. If it hasn't come in the rearview mirror, it's on our way at some point. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about Buddhist principles and philosophy in, it's not managing the pain. The pain is certain. It is the suffering that ensues after the pain that is optional. Well, that's a very interesting distinction you draw between pain and suffering. It's actually the subject of uh, my next book. And I'd love to tell you about sort of how I have people approach pain and suffering uh, when, when we have more time. Well, we are going to have more time in a couple of minutes. We're going to dance off to a break to learn more about Dr. Alex Lickerman and his work. Please visit alexlickerman.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Alex Lickerman. And on Facebook, you can find him at, guess what? A. Lickerman. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? Then look no further. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on Addiction, an Integrated Journey to Wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. 
Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about Buddhist principles and philosophy with Dr. Alex Lickerman. He is an author. He is a practicing physician and who is using the tools and resources of Buddhism as a philosophy and a way of being with his patients as well as in his personal life. And prior to the break, we were talking about the human nature of pain and the optional experience, and I'm, I'm really editorializing when I say this, the optional experience of suffering. Yeah, so you know, in my in my first book, The Undefeated Mind, there's a chapter called "Accept Pain," and uh, there's a, it's actually one of the most popular uh, notions that I'm able to employ with patients. They make really great use of this, and the idea is, when you feel pain of any kind, whether it's physical pain or it is some type of emotional pain, uh, one of the more common ones being anxiety, our natural uh, reaction to that is to try to get away from it. That's actually how we evolved to get away from pain because it's so adaptive, obviously. The problem is that when we evolved these amazing frontal cortices, the, the frontal lobes of our brains and developed higher intelligence and self-awareness, our tendency to want to avoid pain followed us into the psychological realm. And so if you're like me and most of the people who I take care of, you spend every day turning yourself into a pretzel in some sense, trying to avoid uh, legitimate pain, whether it's not wanting to answer uh, an email that is going to create conflict or a phone call, uh, whatever it may be, we're always trying to avoid pain. Uh, and the problem with that is that often the suffering that, re that results in our lives from the strategies we employ to avoid that pain create more damage than if we just allowed ourselves to feel the pain in the first place. So when you uh, survey uh, students uh, people of student, you know, college and graduate age, uh, about the number one reason they get lost in drugs and alcohol abuse. Um, and I think you work with those types of, uh, of patients, so I'm sure you know. The number one reason they say they get out there is they were trying to make themselves feel better. Pleasure is incredibly distracting from pain. Well, there's a lot of interesting studies looking at the value of approaching pain not from the perspective of rejection, but acceptance. So whether that pain is the, the pain of uh, nicotine cravings, you're trying to quit smoking, or uh, hunger pangs, you're trying to lose weight, even in patients who have epilepsy who can tell when a seizure is about to come on, they have what's called a prodromal set of symptoms. When people view all of those unpleasant feelings in the spirit of acceptance, become sort of the own, they're an observer of their own discomfort, 
paradoxically, those sensations decrease. In fact, in the case of patients with epilepsy, it actually decreases the frequency with which they have seizures. It's really quite astonishing. And the, I, the goal then becomes not to sort of get away from the pain, but actually to endure the pain. So your goal, you know, you're basically implicitly saying when you're trying to go away from pain, I'm too weak to withstand this pain. I have to get away from it. But when you say, all right, bring it on, I'm going to handle this pain, you're actually implicitly saying, I'm strong enough to handle this. And then in my mind, this sort of delineates the difference between pain and suffering, right? We all feel pain, but not all pain makes us suffer. So for example, you can have a headache that's maybe bothering you and kind of annoying you and preventing you from sort of focusing really clearly, or you can have a pulse-pounding migraine that puts you into bed all day long and prevents you from functioning. So in my mind, suffering is a particular experience of pain where pain in some way overwhelms and defeats you. Weightlifters, when they're lifting weights and trying to pump iron really hard, they're actually in pain, but they wouldn't say they're suffering with that pain. In fact, that pain is their goal because, of course, it's enabling them to grow. So when people can actually distinguish the difference between you know, pain that they can withstand, maybe even the service of growth, and then pain that actually causes suffering that really is just a totally aversive experience, their attitude and view towards pain and how it, it, it motivates them really can change. I think that's the secret sauce right there. I mean, that is that is the prescription that is not in a bottle. That it's contained actually within the human spirit. I think that's right. And there's this uh, fascinating new um, type of cognitive behavioral therapy called ACT, uh, which stands for Acceptance Commitment Therapy. That basically argues a lot of the times the reasons we can't accomplish goals we want to have is not because the obstacles uh, to those goals are outside of us, but they're inside of us. It's maybe our fear, our guilt, our anger, our anxiety that stops us from really pursuing our heart's desire. And when you can make a commitment to that goal or that dream that you have and then identify what is the unpleasant feeling that even contemplating going after that dream uh, comes, brings up and stops me from doing. If I can look at that unpleasant feeling, say my fear and view that not as something I must rid myself of, but something I must learn to tolerate in service of my goal, whatever that may be, it may be, you know, you want to become, uh, you know, a career you want to achieve, or it may be just overcome a physical limitation from a disease. When you allow that pain in and tell yourself you're strong enough to withstand it and will withstand it in the service of your goal, suddenly you are are able to accomplish things that you thought were impossible and you become unleashed. It's an incredibly practical, useful technique for managing uh, our own pain. And also, I think, uh, a, a, a message counter to the message mostly that we get in our society now, which is that if you feel the smallest bit of anxiety, well, we have a pill for that. We're going to take that away because you shouldn't ever feel bad. There's a real pathology, I think, in asking ourselves uh, and expecting that we will never feel bad. And if we never feel bad, Conversely, we can never fully embrace the exquisiteness of joy when we come to know it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it is the, it is the paradox of all of these gnarly emotions that most of us seek to avoid. You know, and I tell my own clients, I said, you know, it's just a little suffering. And if, right. you know, your, your resistance right. to the suffering is actually making this whole thing sting so much more. <laughs> 
Yeah, there really is some amazing, something amazing about accepting it that frees you from it in a way and sort of changes the narrative about your ability to withstand it and then suddenly makes things possible that weren't otherwise possible. And the other thing, of course, as you say is, you know, there is no way to live life without pain. If you're going to spend your entire life trying to get away from it, uh, the, the actions that's going to lead you to take are going to be far more injurious to your health and your happiness than if you just accept life is at times pain and figure out how to become strong enough to handle it. Uh, agreed. And and circling back to your medical practice and the approach with patients who are receiving a difficult diagnosis, especially one such as a terminal one, does the challenge then become teaching or supporting the, the, the patient to em- be empowered using the pain and suffering and end of life prospectus to transform what remains? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously there's a lot of pain involved in receiving a diagnosis uh, that's terminal as well as from potentially whatever that diagnosis may be. And so uh, I have these conversations with my patients and I talk about sort of fundamentally how one can utilize this power of this notion of acceptance to alter the experience of whatever pain you have to feel, whether that is, for example, the pain of waiting for biopsy results and the anxiety of not knowing what those results are going to be, or the pain of going through a procedure whether that is something that's physically painful or even just emotionally painful. I I had a patient actually uh, who had terrible claustrophobia and needed to get an MRI done to make a diagnosis. And uh, he tried four or five times and finally came to me and I said, you know, look at it this way. So when that anxiety starts rising and you start feeling panicky, rather than trying to escape it, meaning, you know, get out of the MRI, which is apparently what's causing your panic. Look at that anxiety as a separate person and look at it and say, bring it on. You know, you, you know, you think that's, that's bad, uh, you know, anxiety. I can handle that. Bring it on. And he told me he tried that. And and then astonishingly, he was going for the MRI the next day. He didn't even feel anxious when that was his attitude. So it has really practical applications in every aspect of a patient's uh, progress with a disease, whether terminal or not. Um, And it's absolutely something I use in in my practice with with patients on on a regular basis. Talk a little bit about Imagine MD, because it sounds like you have created something for yourself and your patients in Chicago that is op that is medicine at its optimal. Well, I hope it is. I mean, I I was motivated to do this because after 20 years at the University of Chicago doing many things besides patient care, I decided that's really what what I wanted to do. That really is my personal mission. And yet the notion of doing that in a traditional fee-for-service model where I'm given 20 minutes only per patient, especially for sick patients, you just can't practice medicine the way I envision being able to practice it. So now, even though it's a subscription model, so patients actually pay $135 a month uh, for me to be their primary care doctor, uh, they get much more of me. And so my initial appointments, for example, are two hours long. And when I spend two hours with the patient, uh, I, I don't just get to know their medical you know, issues and conditions. I get to know them. And I get to also ask them about how their medical conditions are impacting their lives and even bring in a lot of the ideas we've been talking about as, as uh, methods for them to use to improve the quality of their lives. Because what I really want to do as a physician is not just treat the disease, but actually treat a patient and make their, you know, have an impact on the quality of their lives as well as the length of their lives. And so this, this model enables me to practice medicine the way I have always imagined it should be practiced. It's sort of like Mar- Marcus Welby care with 21st century technology molded into one. So I'm, I'm actually having the time of my life. I'm loving it. 
And a little bit of the om mixed in, it sounds yeah, like. Just a little bit of the om. <laughs> a little touch of the om. But, you know, it's, um, it's becoming more widely accepted. You know, a, a lot of our listeners are um, really people that come from the middle of the country, that come from overseas. We have a huge global base to our listeners. And this is becoming more widely accepted. We're hungry for that intimacy in our relationships. You know, with, with, albeit our doctor, our psychologist, and our, or our mechanic. We all well, want that. Yeah, I know. I think so. And I'll tell you, the other thing that's so exciting to me is a lot of the, the Buddhist ideas that I have been trying to embody for the last 25 years, when I sat down to write my book, The Undefeated Mind, I discovered there was just a tremendous amount of science that actually was now proving out these 2,500-year-old ideas and showing the way where people, whether you have any interest in practicing Buddhism or not, you can leverage them in a way that makes a practical difference in the quality of your life. And so I'm, I'm excited to see that there's a, you know, I call this the science of spirituality, but there really are uh, ways you can actually uh, make use of these principles that science is suggesting are legitimate. Dr. Alex Lickerman, thank you so much for being with us. We are excited to have you return when your next book comes out, which I hope is in the not-too-distant future. To learn more, please visit alexlickerman.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Alex Lickerman. And on Facebook, it's a slightly different page. It is A. Lickerman. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. And when we come back, there'll be more, I promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at HarvestingHappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user-friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's HarvestingHappiness.com. Lisa Cypress-Kamen has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit Visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And we're talking about spiritual discernment. We're talking about no BS spirituality. And my next guest is Chris Grosso. He's a public speaker, writer, spiritual director of Tovio by Advocacy Unlimited. He's a teacher with Worldwide Insight Organization and author of Indie Spiritualist, a no BS, and the word is actually spelled out, but I'm going to be proper here so I don't get in trouble with some of our syndicated partners. So let me say that again, Indie Spiritualist, a no BS exploration of spirituality and everything mind, what I've learned about hard knocks, spiritual awakening, and the mind-blowing truth of it all. He writes for Origin Magazine, Huffington Post, and Mantra Yoga and Health Magazine. Chris Grosso has also spoken and performed at Wanderlust Festival, Celebrate Your Life, Yoga Journal Conference, Sedona World Wisdom Days, Kripalu, and Sun Valley Wellness Festival, as well as a myriad of others. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Lisa. I feel so important after that bio. It's kind of funny to me because I'm grateful for the work I do, but... um... Man, I'm just happy being, uh, you know, your average Joe. So uh, anyways, thanks for having me on the show. This is great. Well, you know, you are important. I think that's the point of all of this. You know, all the work that we do is, you know, identifying people such as yourself who are really living their passions. And spirituality is one that is yours, but it, it comes kind of in a in a different way, right? Not in the mo- most classic form that people think of, you know, angels and flowing robes and tablets. This is true. I mean, a lot of what I write about and talk about uh, is, you know, it, well, most of it is actually taken from the great wisdom traditions, the core of them. But uh, yeah, it's fair to say it's presented in, in I guess, maybe a more raw and um, vulnerable in a way, uh offering you know I, I really try to just come from the heart um i i do my best to check myself and my ego at the door when i write and, and not try to write to make myself seem like anything i'm not and and i'm grateful that that seems to be what really connects with readers when i when i do get vulnerable and really like put my quote-unquote failures out there and, and the myriad ways that i have fallen and, and still continue to fall you know just because I've stepped onto a spiritual path and have a practice. It doesn't mean life magically got better, and and that's not the point of it, at least as far as my experience. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's been a really uh, interesting and uh, and fun experience getting to share uh, many of the teachings from these traditions and uh, in a bit of a different way. And, and I'm with you in 500 percent. And the, what I want to uh, just mention is when we look at positive psychology or the science of happiness and we look at some of the research that has been done, there is a direct correlation of higher happiness or self-reporting well-being levels. Uh, for those people who have some kind of spiritual practice. And we're not talking necessarily about religion. We're not talking about the G word. We're talking about some practice that allows us to connect with something greater than ourselves. Mm. 
I mean, that makes perfect sense, whether it is meditation or yoga or, I mean, really, there's so many different quote-unquote spiritual practices out there. Uh, but, you know, looking at that, it's kind of reconnecting ourself with ourself, you know, and, and when we do become uh, or begin to experience life as significantly less separate and isolated, which most of us are used to experiencing it as, that alone will, of course, begin to create a much more peaceful and happy and harmonious way of living. Again, not that it's going to be perfect, but it, it definitely makes uh, the experience of life, at least in my own experience, uh, a friendlier one for the most part. And, and that's been reported by you know, people that have been doing this for many, many years longer than I have, as well as people who've been doing it for maybe only a few days or a few weeks. So it's really uh, very cool to see that that uh, that happens. I am a practitioner of yoga and meditation and some of the things um, that we share in common. And I do find it a pathway to my own personal spiritual connection. But I also have teenage kids and my my son is a surfer. And he yep. and I from time to time have these discussion about what, what God means or what spiritual connection means. And he consistently over the years, and he's now about 16 and a half, goes back to the water and being on his board as mm -hmm. the place that he feels most connected to life. That's perfect. I, you know, I often write about uh, my own experience with skateboarding and how that's a very dear spiritual practice to me because that is where I feel very connected naturally without having to put forth the effort. And I know they say, you know, meditation is supposed to be effortless, so on and so forth. But, you know, when you're first starting out, it, there is a sense of effort. You have to make the effort to sit on the cushion or wherever you're sitting. You have to make the effort to set the timer. Um, and that's why when I talk with a lot of younger people that um, are a bit cynical or skeptical towards the idea of spirituality, uh, the way I tr usually try to approach it is finding where, where's your passion. So your son, perfect example, surfing. For others, it might be art, painting, you know, things of that nature, uh, hiking in nature, whatever it is that is naturally already a passion going to that place and exploring that connection and why is it a passion and really going into that exploration and finding that deeper connection that is there. Uh, and, and again, those are just a few of the countless examples uh, of ways of cultivating, you know, again, a quote unquote spiritual uh, experience and lifestyle. But uh, I love that. I love that that's what your son re uh, relates it as. And in, in speaking with a lot of younger people and young adults, I do, I agree with you that this is a challenge today. And how do we um, help others or turn the light on or shine the light upon these other ways to gain connection so it can be encompassed, you know, or brought into one's daily practice? You know, uh, I, my, other, my other child, I have a, a, a daughter who's in college, she loves to cook. Mm. And that process of baking of you know putting things together and and kneading or mixing that too can be spiritual practice I mean I'm sure you can name a a, a lot of them but people don't often think of them think of these activities as spiritual practice Right, because people do have a natural tendency to compartmentalize, you know, what they believe is spiritual. And the reason I think that happens is, you know, so we learn from these teachers and that's a, an important part of the path. You know, it's, it's great to read the books, watch the, the videos on YouTube, go to the retreats if that's something you feel called to do, whatever. That's great. But what ends up happening for a lot of people is that 
we begin then to try to mimic what we are learning and our, we have expectations that we put in place that, okay, well, since this experience was what it was for this person and I appreciate you know the way they're conveying it, then that's what it needs to look like for myself or should look like. And if I'm not having that experience, then uh, it's not spiritual. But real, authentic, raw spirituality, as far as I'm concerned, is finding that experience for yourself, having that direct, immediate experience that only you can have. No one else can have it but you. So it's going to look like whatever it is going to look like for you in your own life. And that's why I've written in in a couple of my books about different experiences, whether it was skateboarding or being at heavy metal concerts. You know, I I still to this day absolutely love heavy metal as well as, (laughs) you know, other kinds of music, hip hop. I like kirtan. I, I, I mean, I don't close myself off to these things. I don't compartmentalize spirituality. So it's happening for me just as much on the meditation cushion as it is as I get up and walk out into my day. As it is, you know, if my daughter is sick and uh, and I have to be there with her as she's, uh, you know, sick in the bathroom, or if um, you know I'm in a rehab talking to someone or in a detox and I, you know, they're literally sitting there drooling on themselves. Like there is no time or place to me that it is not happening. It's never happening, you know, any more in one area of my life than another. So. That's that's my direct experience of it, and that's all I have to go on. I I I, I so hear you, and it makes me think of a Rumi quote, which I cannot pull out of my brain at the moment. Sure. But Rumi talks about the beauty or the exquisiteness in the suffering. Yeah, I, and and so true, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and I and I say that from plenty of experience, more experience me too. than I need. Yeah, me I too. Mean, and, 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 and I think that speaks to, you know, one of your books, Everything Mind and What I've Learned About Hard Knocks. And we're going to need to go to a break. But when we come back, I'd love to get into talking a little bit about that suffering and the, um, the joyful exquisiteness that can be present that then may allow us to see that spiritual flame come alive. That works for you. <laughs> Love it. I'm, yeah, let's dive into it when we come back. For yeah, sure. because it's um, it's it's coming for us. You know, that's what I love <laughs> to tell people. Like, you know, it may not have knocked on your door yet, or maybe you've had uh, at the age of twenty five or thirty or forty five lifetimes of suffering. But there are those who haven't had it, and it is the very nature of being alive that we will be challenged in this way. That's right. I mean, it's the. Buddha's first noble truth, you know, so if you've taken this human birth, no matter who you are, you are going to experience suffering. Some experience it more, some experience it less, but no one gets through this human uh, experience without having suffering in their lives. It's it's unfortunately part of the deal of being human, but, you know, again, we can explore that deeper when we come back, but the beautiful thing is, I'll just say this really quickly, is that the degree to which we suffer, and this is a really great thing that the Buddha taught and all of the great mystics and, and wisdom teachers teach, is that the degree to which we suffer is much more in our capabilities and capacities uh, to lessen than, than we usually are aware of. So there is hope for us yet. Oh, Agreed. We're going to dance off to a break, and I promise we are going to come back. To learn more about Chris Grosso and his work, please visit www.theindiespiritualist.com. On Facebook, the page is X 
Chris Grosso X. So in other words, Chris Grosso is surrounded by hugs. And on <laughs> Twitter, that handle is the same, at X Chris Grosso X. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H Factor, Where Is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about no BS spirituality with Chris Grosso and his book, Indie Spiritualist, a no BS exploration of spirituality. And I want to clarify that that no BS is actually spelled out as a book title. I'm just trying to be a good girl and not get in trouble with, with our syndication distribution so they won't come after me. Anyway, we are talking about spiritual discernment. We're talking about, or what we were talking about prior to going to the break, was uh, the Buddhist principle number one, and that is pain is certain, but suffering is optional. So Chris, let's talk about that. How do we mitigate, minimize, or dance with our suffering? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the interesting thing is it's not about even uh, minimizing suffering. It's about changing our relationship 
to pain first and foremost, you know, because suffering is a byproduct of our aversion to pain. So, you know, we try to push it away when it comes up or we grasp to external things to deal with it. Um, I, as I write candidly, I'm, I'm in recovery from drugs and alcohol. So that was a big part of my own aversion. Uh, but others in life, you know, there's so much to reach for food, sex, shopping, even spirituality can be a means of aversion for some people. So, changing the relationship to the pain in our lives and understanding that pain is inevitable. You know, that's going to happen whether it is physical pain or emotional pain. That is just part of the deal with life. But learning to lean into the pain rather than run away from it, rather than suppressing it, because again, that's what causes the suffering. And so, you know, basic practices such as meditation, that alone allows us to begin to bring a spaciousness um, to these experiences of pain. It doesn't mean that the pain will necessarily be any less, but it does make it much more easier to navigate. We recognize that it is just a temporary experience that is happening right now. Like Christ said, you know, this too shall pass. That is the case with everything in life, literally. The only constant thing in life is that everything, including us, is changing all of the time. So, you know, really learning to find a way to sit with the pain when it comes, whatever pain it may be, that changes our relationship to suffering. Now, the other side of that that I'll just quickly mention too is that sometimes the pain is really great and it is beyond our ability to sit with. And that's okay too. That happens. But we need to really be very mindful of is it really beyond what I can work with right now or is it just I really can't sit with it. And if you really can't sit with it, which can be the case sometimes, then I'll be the first person to say, you know what, go ahead and, and, and crank the radio up, put a, a comedy on, you know, put a movie on, whatever, to take you out of that place in the moment. Because to me, that is also a part of a compassionate act towards ourselves. If the pain is too much, give some time and space to it, but with the understanding that no matter what, you will come back and be with it and work with it, you know, when, when there's a little gap, a little bit more of a distance between it. I love what you've just said. I, I work in, in addiction and trauma recovery, and I'm sure. constantly sitting with um, many young adults and older people as well who are detoxing and at various stages in their healing process. And last week in particular, and what you said really put a smile on my face. I had a young man who um, was detoxing from heroin. Mm. And he was talking about these intense cravings that he still had, and he just didn't know what to do with them. And we were in a really nice conversation. I looked at him. I said, you know, it's just a craving. Mm. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> <But> it does, <laughs> it's just a craving. It all. is, which will pass. It's, it's impermanent. But I, you know, having gone through similar to what he's gone through, I also know on the other side of it, it, in that moment, it, it feels like so much more than a craving. You know, it, it literally feels like the be all end all of yeah. your entire existence. It's, they say addiction is an insidious disease for a reason. You know, it really, truly, truly is. Well, he laughed when I said it to him. He goes, you know, you're right. I really never looked at it that way because I had assigned so much value to that sensation, you know, that mounting pressure and sensation of, of possibly not being able to control the craving. Right. And I said, well, therein lies the opportunity to change the relationship to that thought. Absolutely. 
beautiful right and and that's great that it clicked for him that's that's really wonderful because again some people when that when they're in that space it is so hard to see that light you know to have that understanding um but it's wonderful that he did see it because it's true that is absolutely true and, and, you know and this too shall pass and the irony of that that craving space is he was out of the danger zone of his detox. You know, he's probably week three or week four of his of his process. Right. And I said, you know, you won't die of your craving, but you could die from your using. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just not to get off topic, but I just the, over the weekend. Uh, I'm, I live in Ottawa now, but I'm from Connecticut, and so I have a lot of Connecticut friends. And I saw there was, I think, twelve deaths in a matter of twenty four hours from a bad batch of heroin going around so just like you said absolutely you never know like an alcoholic you pick up that drink you you get in a car you never know what's going to happen and not just yourself but to someone else so um yeah yeah absolutely let's talk about the mysteries of interbeing this is something that you have written about and have thoughts about and i want to i want to learn them from you well i mean i think that actually segues perfectly with suffering because in my own life that was such a huge part of my suffering i believe i said earlier something to the effect of you know believing in this separate isolated self um you know, that's alone, uh, and, you know, is experiencing this pain. And, um, and so it's, it's not just a Buddhist teaching, but I've done most of my studies on, uh, interbeing through Buddhism. That's actually a term that was coined by the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, which, you know, simply states all things in life are interbeing with one another at all times. Um, so, you know, an example I used was actually there's a, a heavy metal band to go back to that called Motorhead, really big famous metal band, and I was uh, covering them for um, my my website a few years ago, and I had a photo pass, so I'm right up there in the front of the stage, and uh, they come on, and the bass player is playing this really beautiful wooden bass that I'd never seen, a beautiful inlay, uh, hand carved leaf inlay, gorgeous instrument. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I start thinking about the base and then I'm going deeper than the base into the wood and the fact that that wood came from a tree and that tree needed sunshine and rain to grow uh, and, and you know help its roots and then there besides that also had to be uh, somebody working at the company that created the base to actually you know make it uh, and then this person had to have parents that you know uh, came together in order to have him and on and on it goes this this literal interbeing of all things in life, you can look at anything in life and see that, you know, all of these causes and conditions had to come together in order for it to be there as it is in this moment. And that goes for you and me. And I, I mean, literally everything, everything is this dance in Hinduism. They call it Leela, the dance. It's, it's a dance. Uh, and, and <laughs> it's really once, once you start to not only understand it intellectually, but to experience it directly, that's where the beauty of it uh, really lies. And, and in that experience is where, and at least for me, uh, this sense of separation and, and suffering because of that begins to diminish uh, rapidly. Tell me the name again, Lila? Lila, L-I-L-A, the dance. Uh, they, they refer to it as the dance of consciousness, uh, you know, the dance of Brahman, the dance of uh, the one underlying principle um, that all 
the the unmanifest, you know, that gives birth to the manifest. So it kind of it's also called the great uh, chain of being. It comes out of this one Brahman, uh, Buddha mind, Christ consciousness, you know, the be all end all, and it comes out of that, and it's kind of like it just throws and casts itself out, and then it's, thus begins evolution, you know, from um, from. Uh, or I'm sorry. So just on a human level, let's let's kind of fast forward because I know we're limited on time. But we'll just say atoms, molecules, cells into this organism. You know, this evolution, and here we are. But those um, atoms had to become molecules, and then the molecules include the atoms. You know, and then the cells include the molecules and the atoms. So they're all interbeing with one another to create this human organism. And that's just us personally. You look at it, the world and the universe. It's all interbeing with itself. It all had to come together in order to create this experience where we are right now today. It reminds me of a couple of John Muir quotes, which I pulled mm-hmm. up that I absolutely love. Sure. One is tug on anything at all, and you'll find it connected to everything else in the universe. Absolutely. That's one. The other is when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Yeah. John Mary know what he's talking about. That's John, right. John, <laughs> you're new. Yes, yes, he did. Yes. He really did. Um, let's talk about, just for a second, I know we are running short of time, the one word of, of caution to us all is the perils of fundamentalism. And I think that this is a nice counterpoint to, to finish with. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. And, and, you know that a lot that word's associated with a lot of uh religions but it, you know you can also find it uh, very alive and well in spirituality too uh and and it's unfortunate it, and that's something i've directly encountered uh based solely on my appearance i'm a heavily tattooed person i have big holes in my ears and these are just things that i you know i've i've grown up appreciating and enjoying in life and it's been unfortunate that some quote unquote spiritual people have completely written me off or said negative things to me without getting to know me whatsoever, without even having a conversation with me, literally based just on my appearance. And uh, and it's not just me. I've, I've heard that from so many other people. So it's it's unfortunate, you know, but that goes back to, you know, people having these ideas of what religion or spirituality is supposed to be and, and being very hard set in them. And if it doesn't fit uh, neatly into their model, then you know they have this fundamental uh, fundamentalist idea of it, and they're uh, you know they give other people a hard time, and, and that's small scale, large scale. We see the terrorism, and um, you know the just the violence that's been going on uh, forever, essentially as far as far back as religion uh, was birthed. Beautifully said. Uh, we are out of time, and I want to once again, unfortunately, but you'll come back. You'll join us again in a few months, and we'll connect again. To learn more about Chris Grosso and his work, please visit www.theindiespiritualist.com. On Facebook, the page is X Chris Grosso X. so imagine him being surrounded by hugs. <laughs> and on Twitter, once again, it's X Chris Grosso X. The books are Indie Spiritualist, A No BS Exploration of Spirituality, and Everything Mind, What I've Learned About Hard Knocks, Spiritual Awakening, and the Mind-Blowing Truth of It All. Thank you, Chris. I just want to share a couple of thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. 
Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Alex Lickerman and Chris Grosso, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.